Welcome to Visa Spotlights, a podcast by Visa that shines a light on the most exciting developments in the payments landscape right now, while also giving you a glimpse into what the future holds for us all. Hi everyone, I'm your host David Austin, and on this episode of Visa Spotlights, we're going to dig into the monumental shifts happening in the payment industry today with a special focus on what the future holds. Joining us today is Andrew Torrey, Visa's Regional President for Central and Eastern Europe, Middle East and Africa, also referred to as SAMIA. Andrew has an incredibly unique insight into how the payment landscape is shifting in SAMIA and how the industry will need to adapt to cater to changing needs. Welcome, Andrew, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you, David. It's great to be here with you. Let's start with an overview of economic growth in the SAMIA region. What are some of the shifts we have witnessed up until now? There's a lot going on. So SAMIA, it's hard to talk broadly about SAMIA without talking about some of the different archetypes in the region. But you know, more broadly, some of the challenges we've seen in the global economy are certainly impacting uh, SAMIA. So you know, higher inflation, now higher interest rates to try to combat that inflation uh, has, really, um, has really tempered some of the economic growth. I see two major archetypes in the region. The first one are the large uh, energy exporters um, that generally have currencies that are aligned or uh, pegged off of U.S. dollars or euros. Think of the GCC. These markets uh, you know, have had certainly windfalls of higher petroleum prices, also lots of inward uh, investment in those economies and more tourism. So the economic growth there looks pretty buoyant. You've got another set of markets that really uh, you know, have had higher inflation, uh, they've had higher debt, um, and that's made the, the cost of that debt more expensive. Huge energy importers and food importers. So it's been more challenging uh, in, in many of those markets. You know, despite that, um, you know, globally, we're predicting next year about 2% growth across the global economy. SAMIA, our markets are going to be doing better, about 2.8%. Uh, and some of them are even returning to and exceeding pre-COVID growth levels. What's driving that, I think, are a couple of things. One is you've seen continued digital transformation across our economies, uh, and it's starting to have really uh, laudatory effects on both the economies uh, and on consumption. It's a lot of consumption-led growth we're seeing as well. So consumers are buying more. If we look now, uh, where we're tracking pre-COVID to post-COVID now, we've seen every major sector now um, growth above 2019. So not just basic foodstuffs, et cetera, discretionary, non-discretionary, travel is back, you know, consumers are spending, and we've seen really good, not only face-to-face -face growth, but e-commerce growth is really, really increasing. Thanks, Andrew. I'd love to dig into this a bit more. You mentioned the rate of e-commerce growth in comparison to face-to-face -face transactions. During the early days of the pandemic, this was a common data point by which analysts charted behavioral shifts. But what have we learned from this? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing. So, you know, if we just look more globally, uh, you know, across the globe, uh, there were some economies that were very sophisticated. E-commerce had been around for a while. If you look at the U.S. market um, pre-COVID and post-COVID, you know, that market grew in the two years of COVID by 55%. So massive, massive continued shift to e-commerce. In our markets, uh, you know, um, we did see that. We saw new consumers coming on and using e-commerce for the first time. Uh, which was great. So we saw at the start of it, you know, e-commerce was always growing faster than than face-to-face -face transactions, but it got a premium. And that stayed fairly steady until in the last six to nine months 
where it started to diverge and and face-to-face commerce was growing really well, but e-commerce was growing even faster. And if you want to explain that, I think it's two things. One, um, consumers continued to still enjoy e-commerce. They were using it, but you've seen lots more merchants come on. So if we're thinking about things that just, you know, most people like me, I, I'm now getting my fuel uh, via e-commerce, my groceries. So you've seen two things happen. You've seen more merchants coming on uh, and and making e-commerce available to consumers. You've seen better buying experiences, but you've also seen better infrastructure and delivery infrastructure. So all of that is really creating really strong tailwinds for e-commerce growth across the region. That's really fascinating, Andrew. But if we were to narrow our focus to the Samia region alone, where we're witnessing a new wave of digital disruption, what do you think is driving this? There is absolutely massive digital disruption. I think I would explain it in two ways. One, you've got a bit of the supply side and then the demand side. On the supply side, um, there's still so much offline you know, business, commerce, cash is huge. And, and so there's still so much there to actually be driven. And we've seen a couple of things driving it. One, our governments themselves, they're really pushing for broad digitization. You know, they used to say it before, now they have explicit policies and they're driving it. Um, they've seen how important it is. So you see governments that are you know, making sure that they allow innovation. They're making sure there's investment in broadband and internet access across the board. They're making sure it's easy for fintechs and technology companies to come in. And they're also digitizing their own government services. Um, and that starts to get consumers you know, doing more of that. Um, the other thing I think you've seen is the cost of technology has come down. So now smartphones uh, have come down considerably. You're seeing devices sub $20 um, that are super powerful computers and that also have chips in to allow for commerce. And then the last thing I think you're seeing is because of this and this big opportunity, you've seen a ton of private equity and venture capital flow into fintechs and continue to flow into fintechs across our region, in particular Middle East and Africa. So that's, you've got a massive supply side push. And then the consumers and merchants have always been ready for it. So you see more and more adoption and we're seeing that uh, cash is starting to um, disappear in our region. You're starting to see that face-to-face transactions, great experiences. So contactless, we're over 82% of all face-to-face transactions are contactless. We're seeing more tokens to make e-commerce and face-to-face even better. We've passed our four billionth token. So there's just a lot happening in this digital transformation uh, that we're seeing more broadly across and uh, both supply-led and demand-led. Well, four billion tokens is a huge number, but it appears that we still have a ways to go. Would you tell us why expanding the digital economy is so important? We've made progress, but ultimately... Um, the digital economy is expanding. And for me, it's a question about, is everyone going to be able to participate in the digital economy? That's the real big question, uh, certainly uh, on our minds and on many people's minds. This is why I talked previously about governments making sure they're shepherding and doing their part. Uh, and you know, we um, at Visa believe access is absolutely critical. We believe having access to the digital economy, to financial products and services, uplifts and empowers individuals and communities. So there's a lot happening in this space, and we know the digital economy is going to be the largest growth factor. So it becomes vital um, to be able to make sure participation's there. And I think there's a couple of things uh, we see. We definitely see uh, that consumers um, have the ability 
uh, but we know we need more consumers that are participating. So we see things such as fintechs and others coming in. We see governments supporting um, you know, more um, digital IDs and identification to make it super easy for consumers to start to participate. We know there are still 500 million consumers in our region that don't have access, and the ability to be able to have them gain access to a payment device, a credential, and then start being able to, once they make payments and have a savings account, get access to credit is vital. Uh, that's critical. The same problem is happening on the small and micro merchant side. Uh, there are 64 million small and micro sellers that are living in a completely uh, offline world. So they're not financially connected. They're not connected to commerce. They can't reach the broader global set of consumers that are out there. So that's an imperative uh, to get them there if you're really going to uplift the communities because these small and micro merchants are the backbones of communities. So, you know, we're seeing um, similar things there. Um, folks that are coming in and we're working to help small and micro merchants here at Visa, we believe it's absolutely critical. We have uh, uh, certainly a very focus on them, especially on women entrepreneurs that have a huge funding gap there. There's about $1.7 trillion globally um, that women entrepreneurs do not have access to that male entrepreneurs do. So there's more happening in this space. There's more people coming in, but giving them access to commerce, giving them access then to credit, giving them access to global sets of consumers where they can get the data associated with it uh, and understand how to change what they're making, how to meet different consumer needs are all really, really critical. So digital access is certainly going to be the foundation upon which our economies are going to be built in the future. Talking about the future, there's one demographic we absolutely have to consider, and that's Gen Z, especially here in Samia. Our Samia region will represent almost 30% of our global Gen Z population. So what do we know about them? Gen Z is enormous in our region. They represent a giant wave of people and consumption. They're aged 12 to 26 right now. Uh, and as you mentioned, you know, they're 30% of uh, Samia has 30% of the global population of, of Gen Z, but they're even bigger in the region. In Africa, for example, um, there are 441 million Gen Zs right now, which is the largest single demographic segment in the region. Uh, they've lived through a fair bit of, of uh, change you know, the, uh, during their lifetime, whether it was the financial crisis, whether it was COVID, they're resilient, they're incredibly optimistic, and they're entrepreneurial. Um, they really love to be uh, in communities, uh, you know, using apps uh, and, and engaging in different ways. They're also huge gamers as well, as you would expect. They consume entertainment and content fairly differently and in different generations. So it's clear that Gen Z represents a huge opportunity, but how do we reach them? Yeah, this, this is the interesting part. Um, it's going to be different the way you reach non-Gen Z. So if you're a non-Gen Z, you know, you often engage in the world and you go out and find things. Gen Zs, because they live on these apps, whether it's TikTok or Instagram or Snapchat, um, they're used to really connecting in a community and getting very tailored information sent to them via a series of algorithms. So they'll know that this person loves football, loves fashion, and is really interested in sustainability. And they're and they're at the one small micro persona, and these apps feed them that. So where they are is they want they expect to be fed very very relevant information um, that meets their needs. They also are very different in the way that um, 
they want to make sure that they're not being advertised to the way traditional um, older demographics would be. It's really that they want to have a conversation with brands and businesses. So um, we have a series of experts at Visa that really understand this place, space and really understand how to be able to connect with them. You know, For example, um, we've just launched a um, Get Paid campaign uh, with influencers and content creators, and we're working with this younger generation you know, to be able to, to help them out and help them really grow their businesses. So you're starting to see the real transformation in content creation and generation, uh, and they're very comfortable both in an offline and online world where, again, they're getting very tailored messages uh, and content that makes sense to them and, and that they'll use. If it's, if it's not and it doesn't seem genuine or authentic, they're, they're not going to bite. Yeah, it appears that Gen Z is digital first and very much used to tailored messaging. How does this translate to Gen Z's payment preferences? Yeah, so the, the payment preferences, it's, it's actually, it's fairly similar. They're, they're also different from previous generations. So for a payment and, com- and commerce preference, they don't like cash. So there's a huge, huge desire to be digital. If you think about that they spend their lives on devices, the same translates through to buying and selling. So um, they want to be able to have an easy uh, way to be able to buy and sell things. Uh, and I think it, it comes through in a couple of different ways. The first is that most of them um, expect when they work with a financial provider that they're getting everything digitally and it's instant, just like when they download apps. Uh, two is, what's really interesting, is about 25% of this generation already has access to credit. Uh, and then the third thing that's interesting about this generation is where they're getting their financial information. 58% of them go to TikTok to get financial information. So convenience and spending control are really important. They are starting to reach an age where they're, they're taking on debt and they're using credit. And where they do it um, is, tends to be even more so than previous generations as part of the buying experience. So think of buy now, pay later. You know, they're at Instagram. They see something that makes sense for them. They buy it and they're offered buy now, pay later. So that's a good example of how this generation is buying and spending. Andrew, that was fantastic insight on how the payment landscape in Samia is changing and what we really need to be focusing on. Thanks again for taking time off your busy schedule to speak to us. Thank you, David. So let's recap. It's essential to reflect on the tremendous progress and transformation we've observed in the Samia digital payments landscape over the last few years. Notably, the trends we witnessed during the pandemic didn't just persist, they gathered pace. The shifts were not transient, they marked a transformation. The underlying opportunity is clear, with Gen Z poised to be at the forefront of this economic dynamism. The future looks promising, and much of that optimism is attributable to Gen Z. They're poised to significantly influence spending patterns in the coming years. Recognizing their significance, it's imperative to craft payment experiences and engagement strategies that resonate with and are tailored to their unique lifestyles and preferences. In today's digital age, that means understanding and integrating into their online behaviors and patterns. Now more than ever before, engagement is key, and personalization and flexibility stand as cornerstones. Thank you all for tuning in to this episode of Visa's Spotlights, Samia's Growth Opportunity. I'm your host, David Austin. Stay tuned for more insights in our upcoming episodes.